my Vetfolio voice friends. I'm so glad you're here for the fourth and final episode of our Parasite Talks with Dr. Susan Little. I hope you've enjoyed listening to them as much as I've enjoyed recording them. And I'd like to give a big shout out to Elenco for making these episodes possible. For this episode, we're going to stay on the topic of fleas and ticks and talk more specifically about vector-borne diseases what they are, how to diagnose, treat, and monitor them, and most importantly, how to prevent them. As I mentioned before, I'm joined once again by the one and only Susan Little. She's a Regents Professor and Kroll Ewing Chair in Veterinary Parasitology at the Center for Veterinary Health Sciences at Oklahoma State University. She's recognized internationally as a leader in veterinary parasitology and vector-borne disease. She teaches veterinary parasitology and oversees a research program centered on tick-borne diseases and zoonotic parasites. In addition to all that, she's a founder and co-director of the National Center for Veterinary Parasitology, a past president of the American Association of Veterinary Parasitologists, and an emeritus member and past president of the Companion Animal Parasite Council, or CAPC. Let's jump into our fourth and final talk. Dr. Susan Little, thanks again for being with me today. All right, we're back again with Dr. Susan Little on another great parasite episode. And in our last podcast, we talked a little bit about fleas and ticks and prevention options and things along those lines. So we're going to dive a little bit more into ticks today and specifically vector-borne infections. So Dr. Little, thank you so much again for being back with us. Oh, of course. I'm happy to do it. So jumping right in. Just like ticks, it stands to reason that tick-borne infections are becoming more common. Can you review the most common tick-borne infections we see and what symptoms should make us think tick-borne disease? Yeah, definitely. So most common would be Lyme disease, anaplasmosis, ehrlichiosis, and then in some ways, cytozoonosis, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, because really most common depends on where we are, right? So where you're practicing. In the Northeast or the Mid-Atlantic states, to New England, even into Canada, and then in the upper Midwest and into the central provinces, veterinarians are really familiar with Lyme disease. And Lyme disease is becoming more common really across the Midwest, even in places in the upper South, like Kentucky, Tennessee, the Carolinas. So that might be the common one that we need to worry about. And with Lyme disease, many dogs are seropositive, but they're clinically normal. And, you know, we do worry about Lyme arthritis for sure. And we worry about glomerulonephritis, but it's, it's uncommon, but when it occurs, Lyme nephritis is really devastating. And so those sorts of symptoms, arthritis, renal disease that, you know, might make us think tick-borne infection. There's even some newer data showing that dogs that are seropositive to Borrelia burgdorferi are at increased risk of chronic kidney disease. So being sure to manage the renal health of seropositive dogs and thinking about that in endemic areas is important. And then the other newish thing we know about Lyme disease is that cats can develop clinical signs associated with infection. So that kind of widens who to worry about for ticks and tick-borne infections. In the same areas where we deal with Lyme disease, so Northeast, New England, anaplasmosis caused by anaplasma phagocytophilum is common. So dogs and cats can develop clinical disease after infection. And with anaplasmosis, we see more of an acute disease presentation. So fever, lethargy, anorexia, but they can also develop GI signs or bleeding, epistaxis, and a lot of thrombocytopenia, which we see in many conditions but definitely thrombocytopenia puts tick-borne infections on the list. So that's, that's the Northern US. 
in the southern U.S., including in the southwest, or maybe especially so, we see ehrlichiosis most commonly. And ehrlichiosis can be confusing because a lot of dogs, again, present clinically normal. But when a pathogenic strain of E. canis is on board, that really pathogenic Ehrlichia canis agent, the dogs can get high fever, myalgia, bleeding, petechial ecumatic hemorrhage. You know, it can be fatal in dogs. And so again, thrombocytopenia can tip us off. What's really interesting is there's some new data that shows Ehrlichia antibodies in dogs in areas where E. canis is endemic have been tied to dramatically increased risk, more than double the risk of chronic kidney disease. So we now know to monitor renal health in dogs with Ehrlichia in areas where E. canis is common, similar to how we do Lyme disease. And then another common infection of dogs in the South that can be tricky to sort out is Rocky Mountain spotted fever. We all worry about that highly fatal virulent Rickettsia Rickettsii infection, but it turns out there's many spotted fever group Rickettsia, not true Rocky Mountain spotted fever agent, but other Rickettsia that cause antibodies in dogs that'll give a positive on a serologic test. So not all dogs with antibodies have Rocky Mountain spotted fever. If they do, then high fever, vasculitis, even necrosis associated with that vasculitis, collapse, fatality um, in the absence of antibiotic treatment. So those are the ones I think about in dogs. And then cytozoonosis. I mean, if you're in an area where cats get cytozoonosis, it's so important and common. If you're in an area where they don't, then you know you don't really have to think about it that much in practice. So I don't know how I feel knowing that there's so many common tick-borne diseases. Like I'm a little scared to ask this next question of what about the less common tick-borne <laughs> infections? I mean, that seemed like a lot. Um, yeah. you know, are, there, are there other ones that are more unusual that we should be keeping in mind? You know, there are. And in some ways they're the up-and-comers and that right now they're less common, but as the tick spread and the tick populations increase, we expect to see more cases of these. And so I mentioned cytozoonosis in cats. And if you're practicing in Eastern Oklahoma or Missouri or Arkansas, that's not an uncommon infection at all. That's an important common infection, but for the rest of the country, it's less frequently seen. So cytozoonosis in cats could still for sure be important. Babesiosis, so dogs with babesiosis, we might see fever, anemia, chronic poor doer, and that can occur. It's just not as much of an everyday encounter, every week encounter for a practicing veterinarian as the bacterial infections, the Lyme disease or Lichia anaplasma infections. With Babesia, there's two different groups of Babesia to worry about. So there's the large Babesia, what we used to call Babesia canis, definitely more cases in greyhounds, but sometimes in the general dog population for sure. And then there's the small Babesia, Babesia gibsoni. That's the one we see more in the pit bull type dogs with a history of fighting, but then there's some spillover to the general dog population too. And then another less common, thankfully, tick-borne infection is hepatozoonosis. Um, and it can be quite severe. So that's why I say it's thankfully less common. It's transmitted by Gulf Coast ticks. So we see hepatozoan americanum infection in dogs where the Gulf Coast ticks are common, which used to be just the Southern border right along the Gulf Coast, but those ticks have moved very um, significantly northward. And so we're now finding that tick um, in the Midwest, in the Upper South, and wherever that tick is common and dogs get infected with hepatozoan americanum, they can develop severe depression, anorexia, fever. They get really bad muscle pain, muscle wasting over time. It's quite profound. And they'll often have a very high neutrophil count. 
It's not in every dog with hepatozoonosis, but when you see that really high white blood cell count, then it's worth thinking about hepatozoan americanum. And another time to think about those less common tick-borne infections is when the dog doesn't respond to doxycycline, right? The standard treatment for Borrelia, Anaplasma, Ehrlichia, Rickettsia. That lack of clinical response when you're treating a bacterial tick-borne infection is an indicator to me. It really suggests that revisiting the diagnosis is of value. Co-infections are possible. So they could have a protozoal tick-borne infection and a bacterial tick-borne infection, um, or it could be another issue altogether. So we expect dogs to respond to doxycycline treatment if they have uh, rickettsial or Lyme disease, you know, if they have a Brillia infection. And if they don't respond, then we should be thinking about other possible diagnoses. So there are tons of tick-borne diseases out there and the symptoms really run the gamut. I mean, arthritis, kidney disease, um, thrombocytopenia, anemia, fever, high neutrophil count, um, vasculitis, you know, they can really look like anything. Yeah, absolutely. So just something we should probably be aware of in our geographical area of what kind of tick diseases are available and, you know, kind of have them on our radar to look for in sick dogs. Yeah, for sure. So speaking of being aware and screening and things like that, um, we screen for tick-borne infections and we find seropositives relatively commonly. I know I do, even when they've been on tick control. So why do we find these seropositives in dogs that have been on tick control? And what do we tell our clients in those situations? Yeah, no, that's a really, it's a great question. And it's an important conversation to sort of rehearse and think through ahead of time. We know tick control is incredibly important and we know that it prevents so many infections, right? It's not, I mean, it prevents ticks, which is reason enough to use it, but a few infections can still get through. And so we don't have to worry about all the infections we didn't see because the owner was using tick control. The only ones they want to talk about are the ones that do get through, even though they were using tick control. And so I think it's important to use it as an explanation. This is why the tick control is important, because the risk is so high, because we're worried about these infections. And so we have to make sure we keep doing everything we can to protect your pet. And then it kind of depends what tick control they're using, right? Repellents that repel and kill ticks keep the ticks from feeding. So adding a repellent to the tick control arsenal can help reduce infections. But we know control products aren't 100% effective. A few ticks are going to be able to feed, even if the client's consistent, even if the dog's consistent and wearing the collar. And for the systemics, for the isoxazolines, the ticks have to feed to get killed. So we thought, you know, when the, when the laners were first introduced, we thought, you know, oh no, the ticks are still going to feed. The dogs might still get infected. But now there's great data showing that the systemic products all the laners, like the repellents, can dramatically reduce infection with Babesia. Um, there have been studies with some of them for Borrelia, Anaplasma, Cytozoan, and cats even. So as long as the ticks are killed before the infection is transmitted, then the pets are protected, which is great. But a few ticks will still get through. So sometimes we still see those seropositive. And it becomes important to keep testing dogs annually, even if they're on a tick control. Same as we test dogs for heartworm, even though they're on a heartworm preventive. Absolutely. And when we're testing them and we get these seropositives back, um, if they're clinically normal, what's our next step? Is there an additional workup that we should be pursuing at that point? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So first, you know, we always review the history and the physical, just make sure no evidence of illness. If there's any clinical disease, then treatment's indicated. But for Borrelia, if they have antibodies to Borrelia burgdorferi, and yet there's no nothing in the history or the physical exam that makes you think this dog 
could have clinical Lyme disease, then the reflex test would be your analysis um, with a chemistry panel and SDMA, whatever your protocol is to work up a dog for potential renal disease, because that's the that's the really scary prospect with a dog with um, antibodies to the Lyme disease agent is that they could move towards Lyme arthritis. For Ehrlichia, a CDC with a platelet count is important. And we now know because of the data on renal disease, if you're in an area where Ehrlichia canis is common, so the southern border of the US and in California, or the Caribbean or Mexico, or a history of travel to any of those areas, then in addition to that CBC and platelet count, a chemistry and SDMA, just to, again, evaluate uh, renal function, renal health in that dog. For anaplasma, CBC with platelet count, you could do a chemistry panel to look for increased liver enzymes. We don't have evidence of renal disease associated with anaplasma infections, so we don't worry as much about, about um, kidneys in dogs with antibodies to anaplasma. And then, of course, no matter what, make sure the dog's on tick control. Um, and if you're in an area where Lyme disease is endemic or emerging, making sure it's vaccinated, current for vaccination, you know he's at risk of infection. And so even though this time he seems to be doing okay, next time gets infected with a tick-borne infection, may not be so lucky. So we do see breakthrough infections with Borrelia burgdorferi even in vaccinated dogs, although thankfully not clinical disease. So we need to make sure even if the dog's vaccinated, even if they're on tick control, that we continue to um, evaluate their health in terms of tick-borne infections. And after we get done recording this, I'm going to go back and re-listen to it and write all of that down to try to keep them all straight. <laughs> uh, so this is a question that always confuses me. I'm never sure what to do in these scenarios, uh, and it, it has to do with treatment. So I've heard some people say, even if they're asymptomatic, you should treat with doxycycline. Others say, no, don't treat. At what point do you recommend treatment for these dogs? Uh, and, and does it vary depending on what they come back, which tick-borne disease they come back positive for? Yeah, yeah, that's the, this is the big question. And the honest answer is there isn't one right answer for every patient. So it's so, okay that I'm like banging my Absolutely, going, what do yeah. I do? It's, it's a different answer for a different patient with a different presentation, with a different history. So for the most part, I mean, none of us want to use antibiotics in a clinically normal, lab workup normal, but seropositive dog, right? We know that that's just antibodies, could be a resolved infection. You know, it's a past infection, but it could be a current infection. And so I, I understand the conundrum. If it's the first time the dog's seropositive, maybe you screen the past four years and you got negative, 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 and now this year it's positive, right? That suggests a more recent infection. So maybe in that patient, you'd be more likely to use those just in case antibiotics. But my recommendation is, you know, review the history, confirm they're using tick control, and make sure they start if they're not, confirm they're current on vaccination if it's an area where Lyme disease is, is um, a concern. See if they traveled with the dog anywhere, right? So you might be able to ask about um, travel history, lethargy, anorexia, run those additional tests we talked about. But if everything's still normal, then some will treat, like you said, some will say, we'll go ahead and treat just in case, and some won't. The arguments to treat usually revolve around, you know, the dog isn't clinically ill today, but it may become clinically ill. This is a new infection. I want it gone. And I, I get that. Um, and I've seen seropositive dogs that appeared clinically normal and there was no indication treatment was needed, but 
they responded to that just in case treatment. They showed, you know, in just a couple of days, increased energy, improved appetite, all around happier dog, even though all the lab work was normal going into it. The arguments against treating are that there's a lot of seropositive dogs out there that are managing their infections just fine. And it isn't necessary to, you know, put them or their GI system or their owner through a course of doxycycline that treatment um, would be an overuse of antibiotics. And I agree with that too. And really it's a clinical decision that has to be made in the room with the patient, with the dog, and not based on a blue spot or a line on a test cassette, but on the patient and the results of all the clinical data you've assembled for that patient. So I don't think there's a wrong answer other than you know, keeping a seropositive dog indefinitely on doxycycline forever or treating every third month over and over trying to get rid of the blue spot, right? That would be the, the wrong answer. But a single course of doxycycline one time, the first time the dog's seropositive, I don't think there's a lot of harm in that, although there can be uh, GI stress and issues associated with it for sure. And then as far as like Ehrlichia versus Brillia, like would you respond differently for a different dog with a different pathogen? Um, we have so many different Ehrlichia species out there that can trigger a positive on the test. So a dog that has antibodies to Ehrlichia in the upper south, where we don't see as much Ehrlichia canis, then that dog probably benefits from treatment less than a dog in Arizona or um, Southern California that's more likely to be infected with that highly pathogenic E. canis. So the answer might change depending on where you are, even with the same test result, depends on what you see in that area. So it's like so many other things in veterinary medicine that really taking the whole clinical picture into account, like you said, not doing a one size fits all, not treating a blue spot, um, but taking that whole clinical picture and that individual patient into account. Absolutely. Yeah. And you kind of already answered a little bit of my next question. And it, it has to do with, you know, once they're seropositive, they stay seropositive for life most of the time. So is this something, I mean, do we need to be repeating treatment? Uh, do we need to continue to run blood panels? What's kind of the long-term management plan for these guys? Yeah. So some dogs, like you say, do stay seropositive for years. And if they're living in the world, then we also wonder, are they getting reinfected, right? Or a few ticks getting through and it's triggering a memory response. And that's why we keep seeing antibodies. But we know from research, even dogs kept in indoor kennels in research settings, tick-free, stay seropositive for years. So we really do think it's persistent infection. As far as how we evaluate, based on what we now know about chronic kidney disease and Borrelia antibodies or Ehrlichia canis antibodies, if it's a patient that fits into that category, then yes, I would work it up for renal function annually, just with the chemistry, SDMA, make sure things look good, or that we can intervene as soon as something does develop. So being proactive about that increased risk that we, we now know is there. But, but absolutely, we don't keep giving antibiotics trying to make the antibodies go away, right? So once you've done that four week, just in case, there's no need to keep treating them. They do need to be on tick control though. We know they're at risk. They already have evidence of one infection. And we know that um, disease is more severe with co-infection. So we don't want to add something to that patient that kind of tips the balance. Absolutely. Of course, we worry about the overuse of antibiotics in these scenarios too, if we were to treat over and over and over again. Um, is the overuse of antibiotics or resistance in doxycycline, um, anything like that, is that something we need to be concerned with in these cases? 
Yeah. So we definitely don't want to shift the microbiome of the dog. We don't want to create GI stress or owner stress. But in terms of resistance, current thinking is we don't need to be as concerned with the tetracycline antibiotics like doxycycline. Um, it can happen in some bacteria. We can select for resistance, but because of the mechanism of the tetracyclines, it's considered less common. The bacteria manage to resist tetracyclines by either pumping it out or not letting it in. And since rickettsial agents like Ehrlichia, Anaplasma, rickettsia, they're obligate intracellular, they're in the cell. So they don't have many options to try and get rid of the doxycycline, the cells hosting them, let it in. And then for Borrelia, there's some data showing that bacteria can persist in the face of antibiotic use, but it's not the same as resistance. It's just that they shift their form so that the, the, they're not killed by the doxycycline. But still, infection continues in the face of antibiotic use. And so, you know, clinically, it will have the same, the same outcome. So we don't have evidence of true resistance in tick-borne agents, but we worry about it. You know, a few years ago, I would have told you we didn't have evidence of resistance in heartworm or hookworm but now we do, so things can shift for sure. So I'm not overly concerned about doxycycline resistance, at least with the tick-borne agents, but cautious to only use a treatment when it's indicated and when we think it'll benefit the patient. And the trick with doxycycline is knowing when that will be for a, for a given dog. Sure. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about doxycycline and um, Lyme or Lickia anaplasma. Of course, those are uh, some of the more common that we test for. Um, but you, you touched on cats earlier as well. Uh, and some of the tick-borne diseases that we see in cats. How is our approach different in cats as opposed to dogs? I mean, are we still reaching for doxycycline? What are we doing differently there? Yeah. So if the cat has Borrelia or Anaplasma or um, sometimes they're licky, it's been reported a few times, we can use doxycycline, but a liquid doxycycline, because the real concern with cats is the esophageal stricture. Uh, doxycycline can be really irritating to the mucosa. Oh, yes. so, and owners do not like chasing that pill with six exactly, mils of water. <laughs> exactly. So I probably would reserve treatment in, in those cases and unless there was evidence of clinical disease, right? Not just treating the antibiotic antibody positive cats, but making sure that we have a justification. And if you're testing a cat for tick-borne infection, we don't screen them routinely. That's not recommended yet. Cats certainly get ticks and they get antibodies to tick-borne infections and they benefit from tick control, but we don't, we're not routinely screening cats with um, patient-side antibody tests. Um, but when we identify the infections, liquid doxycycline is the way to go. And then for cytozoan, which is such a um, tragic infection, tragic disease, we still have about a 50% fatality rate with cytozoan felis. Um, atovaquone azithromycin combination treatment has been shown to be more effective than the traditional approaches we used, but that is also a, you know, in-clinic management, lots of supportive care necessary, really um, challenging undertaking for the cat. So it's hard to treat cats for tick-borne infections, and it's maybe one more reason we need to make sure they're protected if from ticks, especially if they're going outside, that they have that tick control on board. Um, and then Cats are so stoic. I think that's the other thing that, that we know is that cats often don't let us know how just how ill they are. And chronic kidney disease is a concern in cats. And so Borrelia infection, I think there'll be a lot more data coming out about, about that and the, the risk that cats face when they're infected with Borrelia and no one notices and they're, they're not treated, right? So... Sure, absolutely. Another differential to have on our list when we're seeing kidney disease in these guys. Yeah. Yeah. Oh dear. Well, Dr. Little, thank you 
so much for joining us. I always learn so much when we talk, so I love doing these podcasts. Um, are there any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on the podcast. I, I hope it was helpful, the four series for everybody. Very, and at least for me personally. I think it'll be helpful for everybody, but I know I got a lot of questions answered. Yeah, and just that, um, you know, I, I feel... I feel bad that we don't know all the answers yet, but the ticks keep presenting us with new challenges. And I'm very proud of our profession and the way we're confronting those challenges and continuing to work to protect the, the health of dogs and cats in the face of, of all the vector-borne infections that they're up against. I think we've got some great strategies now to deal with them and we just have to be consistent. And then those of us in research have to be persistent in trying to understand the full array of tick-borne infections that we're, that we're working to control. Sure, absolutely. Well, thank you for all that you're doing to get these answers and help us do a better job in treating these guys. Yeah, same. Thanks for having me on the program. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'd like to thank Dr. Little for being with us. I'd like to thank Elenco for making these episodes possible. And a big thank you to all of you for tuning in. If you'd like to find more episodes like this, click on the education tab on Betfolio's webpage. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this session as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at betfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.